Welcome back, everyone, to the Working Audio Tools podcast, the place where Paul Third and myself, Ed Thorne, interview audio professionals from YouTube and the mixing and the mastering communities. We also compare mixes that Paul and I undertake ourselves and constructively critique and break down each other's mixes in an effort to try and learn and share our evolutions as mix engineers on our journey to becoming full-time mix engineers. The podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. There'll be a couple of little segments coming up later with more information about their service that Paul and I use ourselves as well. This week, we have another special guest, which I'm excited about because he is one of the biggest audio YouTubers uh, in our niche. He has a fantastic educational platform. And I think he has, I saw today, the most viewed, some of the most viewed videos out of any audio YouTubers. And I'm talking proper audio YouTubers. I'm not talking about Rick Beato. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, theys and thems, and everyone in between, please welcome Michael from In The Mix, the mixing and mastering educator with his very own YouTube channel. Thank you for that incredibly kind introduction. As a fellow Brit, I'm a little bit allergic to compliments, but I'll, I'll take them all. So thank you very much. And that's, that's, a, that's a very kind summary of, of what I do. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I'm, I'm very happy to be here talking with both of you guys. Obviously, people watching this video will most likely know you more than they know us too. Um, but, for any, but for anybody uh, that doesn't know Just you, Michael... Just a bit. Um, if you could give us like a brief introduction of you, but kind of more like stuff that maybe people won't know, like again, like how you started um, your journey, like from say going from the start of your audio journey. I mean, you could you could go into the YouTube stuff, but I would really be interested to dive into Michael the engineer because um, again, you are um, a working mixing and mastering engineer as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you've got to where you are today. I mean, just, just sort of starting from the beginning, I've always been a very sort of detail-oriented person, and I was uh, in uni, I was studying an engineering degree, and then I got into music production as a hobby, and I was just fascinated by it, just all the aspects, the, the technical and creative aspects of it. So I started recording some cover covers, producing some music, and also just slowly sort of recording and mixing bits and pieces for other people. Um, I got into sort of tried a bit of everything, mixing, recording, producing, mastering, although I wouldn't have called it that back in the day. Over the years, I've just sort of, I just started sharing things that I really struggled with when I started. So I, I started the YouTube channel, started sharing bits and pieces here, either on the software I was using or some hardware stuff, just things that I found were real sort of roadblocks or hurdles for me, problems that I came into. And then over the last sort of five, six, seven years, I've just specialized towards uh, mastering specifically and also a bit of artist development so trying to do as much as I can with the community that I've built to try and pull up as many people and sort of find the areas that they're struggling with and either try to make tutorials and videos focused on that stuff or just working with people one-on-one -on -one. Um, I do a lot of work off YouTube on like we've got this big discord server and I'm I sort of pride myself in being very accessible. So I'm not a sort of creator where you just see me post a video and then I disappear and you can't get to me like loads and loads of people. I, I try to talk to as many people in the community as possible and be involved. And that's obviously you're know, very challenging. It leaves you sort of wide open, but I found it like really, really rewarding and, and a sort of different approach to doing this. I, I did not start YouTube as any sort of business. I didn't view it as a sort of a business opportunity or like a industry or anything like that it, it just started sharing cool stuff and it sort of snowballed into something really really special i think so how were you able to get where you are today like how how long did it take you to gather up all the knowledge that you share with your community i mean was it was it a thing where is it the 10th is ed is it the ten thousand hour rule have i got that right <laughs> This is the one that Paul regularly quotes as the, the 1,000 hour rule in art. <laughs> oh, I wish it was that he's been lazy. If it's the 1,000 hour rule, I'm there. In theory, 10,000 hours. But basically what I'm trying to ask in a very long-winded way, as I do, is how were you able to gain all of the knowledge and the experience that you have today? Yeah, so it's been, it's been bit by bit. I didn't wait until I'd just you know, been in the industry for 10 years before filming my first video as I as I learned something that I thought was cool or beneficial or, or helpful, I would I would just share that as I went. One of the things at the start was that I was I was very open to to feedback and listening. I, I never thought that I I knew everything, which is quite a danger when you first start something. But 
lots and lots of criticism and feedback and critiques has sent me in loads of different directions, really digging through manuals, digging through other people's videos and tutorials and blogs and digging through forums, trying to learn bits and pieces here, sort of as we all do, just sort of soaking it all up. And of course, making so many, so many mistakes, like we all listen back to our old stuff and if you listen back to it and think that's all amazing, then you just know you haven't grown at all. I wasn't afraid to share stuff on YouTube if I thought, you know, I'm not an expert with this software, but this is something I really struggled with when I started. So I'm going to just show people how to how to do this one thing and how to do it well without trying to waste their time or do loads of sponsorships or, or whatnot, because I didn't even know what that was when I started. And I think people could see that I was I was learning as well and I was really open to to people giving me that sort of feedback and I think that's why people connected with it in in, in some way and I think that that helped it grow as well and I, I it's a very sort of cliche thing to say but I've learned you know, as much or more from the community than I've ever shared or shown with that uh, shown to them as well so with the more professional work to give people like more actionable <laughs> advice is when I'm working with artists, like I, I never assume I know what's best for something they're working on. Like I'll always send people different revisions, different versions. And uh, I really like, I'll share the processing with them and, and see what they're open to and what, what sort of, um, what they're receptive to. Uh, well, the question is, do you, do you actually enjoy mastering over mixing or is it, is there another reason why you do more mastering over mixing? Yeah, so I uh, I also really enjoy mixing, and as as other engineers would say, mixing just takes so much so much longer. It's a lot, much more involved process in a different way. I find when I mix, it doesn't always play into my into my skill set because I I just focus far far too much on all the little details, and I when I mix, I can sometimes just lose the bigger picture. And I find that when I master, it allows me to just also I'm not I'm not doing like three or four masters a day. I like sort of working with artists and giving them a lot of time but i also found that with with the mastering it was viewed of as this sort of magic sort of like uh, you know sort of mystical dark different dark and it's it's absolutely not and i i used to view it like that but the more i dig into it the more i talk to professionals and uh, you know just sort of get working in the industry uh, i've really been able to sort of demystify it for a lot of the clients and and share with them the processing work with them to get them really really good results and not not claim that it's anything other than just sort of good old hard work but with the mastering i think it works with my skills better because i can focus in on the details but i get to i can very well listen and, and see the whole the whole forest the whole big picture as well uh, whereas when i do when i did the mixing I, I was the sort of person that could spend days and days adjusting things and getting too too lost in all the little details i think um okay so how, how would you describe mastering if i was well, I am a simpleton, but if I was a real simpleton, uh, hang on, let me rephrase that. If I was yeah. a simpleton with no knowledge of audio, how would you <laughs> describe mastering to those people who think it's a dark art? And how would you describe mastering to those people who just think it's slap a limiter on it and get it as high in volume as you can? So well, both of those together. First, to the person that just thinks that it's just slapping a limiter on, there's so much more to it. And unfortunately, a lot of marketing and a lot of the industry has done a bit of a disservice here because there's a lot of AI mastering tools and automatic mastering tools that sort of make it look like it's just slapping a load of processing on. But if that was the case, then yeah. any mix could just be achieved by putting a load of processing on. Any arrangement could just be done by letting AI take care of the song or whatnot. So there's a lot more to just uh, than just processing. It really is a process where you... I mean, you first, first it's, a, it's a, a human job. You're talking with the artist, whether that's emails, phone calls, you're learning what they actually want, just the way you would with a mix, listening to their rough and sort of learning what, what their sort of hopes and dreams for the songs are. Is this just a personal project? Is it something they want to put on Spotify? Do they want it to be a hit? You know, really absorbing all the reference tracks they send you and thinking about the best way to get their song from where it is. Hopefully the, mi the mixer's left it in a great place for you to get it ready for release and you might have to prepare different versions for different platforms usually not though usually you, you just prepare a, a social master you know there's a lot more to it than just putting fades on choosing the start and end points and applying a bunch of processing you're often automating processing throughout the song just like you would during a mix and it's a it's a really creative process it's not just slapping a bunch of processing on and then to people that just think it's this mystical sort of dark art process no it, it is just it is just the same sorts of tools you'd use in mixing, but often with just a little bit more resolution and you're making much, much smaller adjustments because you're adjusting everything together. So you can really make some big mistakes if you start doing anything too crazy with it. 
You've just said something there, actually, that I think resonates particularly with the current state of the AI conversation in music, um, which is that mastering, much like mixing, is very much a human service and relies on human conversations so that we as uh, service deliverers can capture, as you said, the hopes and dreams. And this is something AI can't replicate. I've just found that resonating very, very strongly. Yeah, very well I mean- phrased. Thank you. I'm I'm making a video about it at the moment, which is why I'm not reading off a script. But like I've had, I've been thinking about this for <laughs> I've been thinking about this for years. But actually, you know, in the last couple of months, m- much much more. And you could argue that you could talk to an AI um, that could make it seem like it cared about your hopes and dreams. So I'm not sure about that. But when it comes to mastering, I think the reason the industry is focused on AI specifically in mastering. And the other tools for AI are, have not really taken off in the same way. The ones for composition, arrangement, and mixing. There are fantastic tools, but it's not as easy to just take a song and say, and there's not really an AI tool that just does it all for you at the moment for mixing or production. I think the reason they focused on mastering is because it's been very easy to pigeonhole mastering as just processing. And there's been so much marketing that's made a lot of people who are new to the, uh, new to the industry or just, you know, new music producers it's been very easy to convince them that mastering is just processing but if we get there with ai that mastering can be handled entirely by ai even though as i'm going to show in this video i've got there's so many you could submit a track with all these problems and the ai doesn't catch any of them once people are convinced mastering can be done with only ai then it's not far for mixing to be completely ai and then you know, like at that point, I think, what what are we really doing? We've kind of removed, I mean, people don't make music just to get the best possible sonic, uh, uh, um, uh, what's the word, sonic, uh, like outcome. Obviously people do want that, but we're doing this as a creative, like a, as a, a human you know, ex- expression of art. And that's, that's, like, what, that's why we do it. Isn't it. Thank you. You found my words. That's exactly what I was form, just trying it? to say. We, we, do, we do it for the art of it. Yeah. And it's nice working with people like each, uh, each client that works with me, I, I try so hard to have, have good conversations with them about their song, what it's about, what they want to do with it. Like what, you know, what they're actually hoping for me to do with, give them good feedback and all this. And it's enjoyable for both of us. Like we, we, it's a, it's a good sort of relationship there. And I know you don't get that when you just put it through a, an AI mastering tool, but also I don't want to come across as being like afraid of technology or anything because I love using like all the latest and greatest tech and whatnots. But I just think there's a, a time and a place for these sorts of tools. Now, a question that I've got. Um, now, it was interesting when we I had an episode when Ed was on holiday and I had Nicholas De Lorenzo on uh, from mm-hmm. Panorama Mastering. And I was making that assumption that many mixers do. And I was asking asking him about limiters. And I found it very interesting that you said to me that, Paul, I, I hardly use limiting and mastering. It's actually more compression that I use. Is that an approach that you kind of follow as well, where you actually tend to lean less on the limiter and more compression in different moves? Is that, do you find that's like a, a misconception of many of what mastering is? It's uh, Honestly, it's a great question. Limiters are, are so important, but when, when you're talking about getting something up to like a very competitive and commercial loudness, because unfortunately almost no one's accepting masters that are, you know, at the recommendations of streaming services and whatnot. So if you submit something at minus, you know, minus 12 to minus 16 LUFS integrate, like it's just not, it's not being accepted. No, no one's taking that. Um, unfortunately, there's arguments to be made that that could sound significantly better. A lot of what I would do would be, you, well, and people like Nicholas, you need to do many many stages of uh, dynamic range reduction if you just leave it all to a limiter as a lot of ai tools do you you can't well i don't want to say you can't but it's difficult to just leave a limiter to chop off eight or nine db at the end and hope for it to sound any good so yeah there's i i would do multiple stages of compression depending on the song a clipping is really really effective it's not going to be for every song and then hopefully by the end your final limiter is hopefully taking two, three dB at most off, and you're still up to really, really commercial and competitive levels. If you want to push to, to crazy levels, then you're you're going to need more limiting. There's no, I, I can't see a way around that at the moment. But it is really interesting seeing different people's approaches because I, I watched uh, one video of his and I was very, it was very interesting to see, again, how little was happening on each process. And then by the end of it, he really did get that level up there. So yeah, it's good. It's good to see. 
And what I find interesting, um, this is something that I got Ed into, and again, his he's noticed a difference in his mixing approach, is the importance of utilising clipping, especially in the mixing stage, and when you realise the importance of your dynamics and how, you know, if you utilise clippers correctly, um, you're not messing with the timing of the limiter. And, you know, would you say that if for many people, like this is something that Jason Joshua was talking about at Abbey Road, if you manage, you know, a lot of your dynamics in the mixing process, it makes a mastering engineer's job a lot easier. Um, so as a mastering engineer, is there are any things that you would kind of advise a lot of mixers to do to make the mastering process a little bit easier? Yeah, so it all depends on how loud you want to finally push it. But when I receive a mix where the, you know, the, every kick and snare is a huge transient above the level of the mix, I don't send it back, but I have a chat with them explaining that if they either compress or sample replace or just clip it carefully in the mix or, or limit those samples in the mix and get everything sort of closer together already, then I don't need to do, like I don't have to have compressors and limiters pumping away, sounding really, really bad to get it up to the level. That's something where, again, you see a lot of sort of insecurity coming through because people think, okay, I know the mastering is going to cut the snare and kick down, so I'm just going to boost it even more in the mix. But a lot of limiters, <laughs> a lot of limiters are actually pretty smart and they do a little bit of, uh, you know, transient shaping before limiting to try and boost some of these peaks anyway. And this is something that I tried to do with my own plugin, which is if something really is lacking dynamic range, I can also try to add a little bit back in key areas so that before you hit the limiter you're not, you're not just completely squashing things down so i guess the actionable advice in the mix would be a lot of more amateur mixes the the main body of the mix is is a you know this uh, sort of thick sort of sausage but then there's all these huge dynamic peaks sticking out and that's always that's always going to present a problem if you're going for sort of very competitive loudness levels um it it might not be a problem if you're going for a very very open and dynamic mix though uh, this sort of takes us on to something that i was going to talk about which is a little bit more controversial but it's the whole you know people trying to keep their mixes uh, a little bit more quiet say minus 12 minus 16 everyone's at you know minus 14 lufs integrated um and people saying that you know always sounds better than a heavily compressed master but if you've got one of those mixes where it is say minus 14 luffs integrated but the peaks are really high like the kick drums and snares are high and they're so loud that they'll just force someone to turn it down well, then that's, it's just not going to be a very good musical experience because your vocals and all the, the instruments are just not going to be, they're just not going to be present in the mix. Um, and I know that's quite sort of like a fabricated example, but it, yeah, you have to do as much as you can in the mix. And this has been said a million times. There's no saving something um, that hasn't been mixed well. But what I like to do with my job is taking on less artists, but giving them more time and helping them understand what they can do with the mixing themselves if they're not going to hire someone like like you guys paul ed do you also are you uh, mixing for a living or are you doing is it a production you know uh, it's mostly mixing uh well i mean paul and i are in the same boat in that we're at the point of this podcast is documenting our journey to becoming full-time mix engineers so i still gig playing drums uh on a, on a professional level and uh youtube know earns a tiny bit of income that covers the cost of my studio uh yeah. other than that it's earning mixing client gain earning gaining earning mixing clients Let's go for that <laughs> and in regards to earning clients now i i, I love your story because it's very similar to mine how and i love the um the doors um, and opportunities that youtube can open up we discussed this with vitsa when we had him on the channel mm. um now obviously you're in a very remote part of scotland I'm in a, a remote-ish part of Scotland and Ed's in London, so really Ed's in the hotspot. But I find it interesting that you could be in such a remote part of the world in Scotland, but you still get tons of clients. So was it kind of the YouTube that opened the doors for you? And you know, how have you been able to kind of maintain that steady um, kind of client list coming in? And how do you manage to stay busy being in such a remote part of Scotland? I think my sort of day-to-day -day as a working engineer is is so different from I think anyone else's because I'm trying to balance it and balance is very you know not very well trying to balance it with YouTube and and these professional work I do. But 
yeah, it has all been uh, through social media. If it wasn't for that, I would I would have to be running some sort of advertising campaigns or you know using Google Ads to try and get clients or something. But by connecting with people on YouTube and through Discord as well, I've I've really managed to. Uh, you know, pe- people have reached out to me who I think most need the help. They're people that usually aren't supported by labels. They don't have uh, other connections to other people in the industry. So it, it's it gives me sort of quite a steady stream of people who are very open to feedback because they're already watching tutorials and they're looking for advice online. They're they're open. You know, their ears are open both to you know good you know, to like good good mixing suggestions. Um, and they also uh, sort of appreciate what I do. So we, it's quite easy that way to form relationships. And then those sorts of people just keep coming back every month or two each time they have something else in the works and they try to share it quite early with me so that I can <laughs> chime in, you know, as they're recording and producing stuff. Because, you know, you'll, you'll know yourself if you've got a song that's like actually arranged well and is written well, it's very easy to mix and very easy to master. So yeah, if it wasn't for... If it wasn't for the YouTube there, I don't know what I'd be doing to get clients. Uh, I think putting myself out there um, has made people feel very comfortable sort of uh, sort of coming my way, I suppose. Um, and then the, the rest of it, staying busy, is when it comes to YouTube and whatnot, there's just, there's there's so much that, that could be done there. I find more recently I'm getting um, increasing amounts of, uh, you know, um, companies sending product and plugins and i'm probably uh you know refusing 100 200 products for each thing i show on the channel there's just a lot of work there behind the scenes that people don't see um probably testing hands-on 10 or 20 things for everything that reaches the channel um so there's there's a lot there to keep me busy as well distro kids sponsor the working audio tools podcast and you can get 30 percent off your first year subscription using the vip link in the youtube video description and podcast show notes distro kid makes distribution of your music easy with unlimited uploads and you get to keep 100 percent of your royalties and earnings Join over a million artists who rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other streaming platforms now and in the future. The new DistroKid app is available on iOS. Go and download it from the App Store now. From here, you can upload new releases. You can see your DistroKid earnings and withdraw these earnings. You can view and share your hyperfollow links. You can check your streaming statistics from Spotify and Apple and even add and edit lyrics and song titles. So keep track of your releases on the move with the new DistroKid app available on iOS. Download it from the App Store now. So in a typical week, what is your breakdown of days or hours in terms of mixing, teaching mixing versus mastering versus YouTube versus yeah. producing and writing your own music if you still do that? Yeah. So I I don't uh, I don't produce and write uh, my own music anymore. Besides just playing guitar and having fun with it as a hobby, I I really find it um, for for me at least much more rewarding to help other people with their music. But that's just personal. I, everyone's going to be so different there. Um, I used to produce and release a video on YouTube every week, which I found was I couldn't balance that with my professional work. I just didn't have time to work with enough clients. So I produce and release a video every two or three weeks or so. I try to master about one song a day or one song every two days. It sort of depends because like averaging it out, I could, if I only spent time on it, do maybe two or three a day, but usually one client every other day or so. And there's, there's a whole, there's, you know, each, it's not like the email and then it's done. That's usually a couple of weeks in the process. So I'm keeping that all going, scheduling that. And then um, once a week I'll, I'll do a filming day, but leading up to that is many days of, testing getting stuff together i'll spend a couple of hours every day uh, either scripting stuff writing out ideas testing product um because it just it takes so much longer than you think if someone sends you a pair of speakers you can't you can't just put some music through them for 15 minutes and make a youtube video i try to be really really thorough with it my days are, are very different every every day is is incredibly different i try to keep bringing it back to you know w- working for clients is really really good for me because it it always keeps me accountable like i have to keep coming back to that there's no you can't leave someone waiting five six seven days to to get their song back so that's that i think is really healthy like not just going down a a rabbit hole of just trying to film the next youtube video or something like that i mean what what would you say for you guys what's 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 your balance for 
So my week is split up. Uh, Monday nights, Paul and I do the podcast. Monday daytimes is usually catching up on admin and editing the previous week's episode, which can take up to three hours. And recently I've been uh, recording the DistroKid segments. There's a great time for an advert after I've just said this. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Seamless. <laughs> Seamless. Um, and then at the moment, I'm, I'm Paul and I are obviously mixing tracks that we find uh, from that produce like a pro academy uh, or artists that we're connecting with to then showcase in uh, in the podcast every other week. So they take some preparation. I'm practicing drums still a little bit. I try and write every now and then and keep keep the vague amount of pressure on my own stuff, but that's definitely down the priority list. Uh, Fridays and Saturdays, most Saturdays I'm gigging as a drummer. So I'll try and do Monday to Friday in the studio and yeah, like you said, testing products. I mean, the audio interface comparisons that I my channel seems to be known for. You know, I have spent two weeks on a video in the past. You know, it, it it's it's very very time consuming. Now, when that video then goes on and does quite well on the ad revenue sales, you think, well, this is kind of this is some payback at least. And and when you see people, you know, commenting and you know you've helped them make a decision to help their musical journey, then it's worthwhile. But yeah, it's pretty much, I try and spend a day on YouTube, a day on the podcast, two days mixing, and a day just take, gets taken up by other stuff, and then Saturdays gigging, and sometimes gigs during the week as well. So, When it comes to me, um, I've got that challenge of not only having a Monday to Friday job, so I have, should I say boring? It's boring to me. It's probably not, probably not very fair on onto my employer that pays the main bulk of my wages. Um, but no, well, it's very not quickly becomes a full time mix engineer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I work Monday to Friday in a college. I'm lucky. Luckily, I work with my dad. He looks after me in there. Um, he's an electrician, so I work as like a technician, like Monday to Friday. So. Within that Monday to Friday, I've got to try and work through dinner breaks. I've got to try and work through like tea breaks and stuff like that. I'm doing like um, pre-mixes during the, the tea breaks, dinner breaks, editing videos. Monday night, I've got the podcast. Um, Wednesday, that's when I always record my YouTube videos so on a Wednesday night. Then Thursday, I've got to then try to find time within the day. Normally, after I finish work, I'll then do the YouTube video on the Thursday and then Friday, I normally try and keep for the missus and the kids. And then Saturday, either Saturday or Sunday will normally be a mixing day because I always need to have a day to mix for this podcast. So I'm probably lucky if I've got, <laughs> I don't know, two, three nights a week that um, I've actually got to myself. But I think I'm really glad you asked this kind of question, Michael, because I think what it shows is the um, the, uh, to, to, to get to a certain stage and, and in this career you've got to put a hell of a lot of work in and audio is very unforgiving it isn't something that you can just rock up to and get like a career straight away like for us we've we've kind of utilized um the social media kind of side of it and it's worked out really well so far see the gen z lot right i just seem to think that i actually feel like an old man saying this but it seems to be like i don't know the work ethic isn't the same for me, with a lot of Gen Z compared to like millennials and kind of before our time. And I think that if you genuinely want a career in audio, you need to be willing to do as much as physically possible, if, whether it be a YouTube channel to try and build up a following or again, just like spending the 10,000 hours, not a thousand hours, the 10,000 hours, um, you know, to put in the work and to have all of these shitty mixes. I mean, I went to uni. And still, I walked out of uni and was like, yeah, I'm going to be a professional mixing engineer. And 10 years later, here I am on a podcast talking about trying to be a full-time yeah. mixing engineer. But I mean, it's, it's just, you've, you need the time and it's a lot of work. It's so much work. Something I would chime in with is also to defend Gen Z is that, you know, when, when you see those folk, when they find something they're passionate about, they'll pour all the time and energy into it. So it really is about finding something that you really are passionate about. Because if you're not, super passionate about audio and like it's it's not it's not worth it. it's not worth sticking with it because it does it does require a huge amount of time and especially with so social media and content these days i find um it used to be very easy to make i used to make two videos a week then one video a week and now it's less and less because 
I'm having to spend so much more time making sure that the videos are shorter and shorter and better uh, than they ever have been before. And it's um, that all that effort, you know, whether that whether you're trying to intern somewhere or whether you're trying to just uh, you know work really hard to get more and more clients, like or whether you're doing YouTube, no matter how you're distributing the effort. It is uh, it is an awful an awful lot of effort, but it's also so rewarding when you get to connect with people and you take their song somewhere. I mean, you you probably guys have experienced this so many times over where you, you do send them a mix or the final mix, and they're just so they just can't believe that their song could have sounded like that. And I've had this time and time again when people just they get so emotional because they're you manage to get their song either to that loudness or that clarity or that sort of bass tone that they send in the reference and when you get it there it doesn't happen absolutely every time but when when it does get there they're just they're so overwhelmed because they thought there was something wrong with them or their ability when it just needed the right people working on it to help them realize their their vision and their sort of dream for the song and it's those sorts of moments that make it they make it incredibly worthwhile for me at least. And I'm, I'm sure it's the, the same sort of stuff for you. You know, there's probably, there's probably not many people that get into this industry to try and make just like loads and loads of money because there's much better ways to try and do that. Like we're doing this to, to try and, you know, like make art happen. Like all, that's what all three of us are doing. We just try to facilitate, you know, the, the creation of art in one way or another. I think a big issue that we do have in this, you know, in the community, audio community, especially for younger engineers coming up, is it seems to be a lot of quick fixes. It's all about the amount of DMs that I get. It's like, Paul, Paul, should I buy this? Should I buy this plugin? Should I buy this? Should I? Do you recommend this? And like, I'm like, why are you asking me? Like, get into the mix and like try out for yourself and pub experiment and play about. But I think a lot of the times what people miss is the why, which I think is what's great about your channel is that a lot of the times I feel like your channel is kind of almost built on the why. Like, why do we do this? A compression, let's learn about compression, EQ. Instead of just thinking, here's a plugin, here's a compressor plugin, it's great. The marketing tells you it's amazing, right? What does this compressor actually do? Attack, release times, ratios. And I think yeah. education is so, so important. And I think that's something that we should never, ever, ever lose. And like, would you say that has been you know, the main success of your channel has been focusing on the why and just the importance of education and maintaining a high level of education within our community. Yeah, definitely. So there's something really, really interesting that, that you touched on there, which was people asking, should I buy this? Should I buy that? And it's because there's a lot of things in, in life, uh, you know, in the way we've set up our society where there are lots and lots of problems that you can buy your way out of or into. And, uh, you know, in a good way, like if, if you do, if you want a better quality camera, you can buy a better quality camera. Like there's lots of things you can do um, where you can just spend a bit more money or buy something different and you do immediately, you have a solution uh, to your problem. But when I, when I start, when I got into audio, I realized very early on that there was, I, I couldn't find many things to, to, to buy or, or you know, free trials of plugins that really made things much better. When I was being honest with myself, I realized immediately that there was a skill. Uh, it was a very, like, it was a skill barrier that I had to, to break through. And it, and I could, I could see, I could see all the marketing. It was so clear. Um, and I just thought, yeah, there's, there's no point trying to gatekeep any information. If I've learned anything at all, even if I'm a complete beginner, I'm just going to share it not get too bogged down in details. I've made some videos where I get too, too detailed. And I think there's, there's other people to leave that to, you know, the, the Dan Warrells of the world, even though that's not even how <laughs> he actually works and how he mixes. But it, the, so yeah, I just think there's, there's no reason to, to gatekeep any of that information. Um, maybe yourself, cause you, I know you went to an audio college. I, I can't remember which degree you did, but you, I'm not sure if you think a lot of the information you learned could have been learned freely or in a different format but i just think a lot a lot of the information I, I think should should be out there for free in my opinion at least i think what's interesting for me is that i learned a lot of the stuff that i know now at uni um but when you're young you have this thing where it's just boring it's like fucking learning about compression i just want to play about with these faders that are in front of me right now it's like mm. no i just like i just want to like fiddle some knobs until it sounds great like i don't need to learn about this or that it's like gain staging and i remember like 
they sat me in front of the console and were like, right, we're going to do um, game staging today and then we're going to do some ADA. And I, I remember, I still remember this day, I turned around to my lecturer and I was like, fucking ADA, when, is, when am I ever going to need ADA? And he just laughed. And then, you know, like 10 years later, here I am with like, like. my uh, my Audion SP8 linked via the Apollo to the live room via 10 meter ADA cable. <laughs> and it's so... I, I got taught many things in uni. Well, my uni, the uni course was shit, really. But the, the, the course at Adam Smith was amazing. It was run by Avid. But they taught me all the stuff that I needed to know. It's just that I was like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. It's boring. La, 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 la. <laughs> and I think that is sometimes an issue that you you never realise how important the boring stuff is until you're actually trying to like do it professionally. I mean, what I've learned, uh, you know, probably the hard way but what i've learned over the years is just to be really really open and receptive to sort of any information coming in like that because you just don't know when you're going to need to know something and there's yeah there's loads of times when i've probably glossed over something and it, it comes around to to bite you when you when you do need it and i, I think i remember hearing dan Worrell talk about like you know you, the reason you dive into all the details is so that when you're really when you're in it doing all this stuff you don't need to worry about all those little details it's all it's all in there somewhere and you can actually just work uh, intuitively but i guess to sort of loop back around to the question you were asking yeah I, I do think the the success has been down to really focusing on the why of things and not just um not just i mean for years my channel didn't showcase any anything beyond free plugins and fl studio how to do this how to do that and um you know studio basics i suppose um and i think people really resonated with that um in in one way or another um, although taking the channel forward, it's it's really interesting trying to find uh, a direction and find what's needed because I, I always just think, you know, what what's the problem for people and do I have a solution for that? And that's what I'm trying to do now is navigate, you know, where where are people's problems with their music, production, mixing, mastering, and what can I do to try and fill that space a little bit more? And uh, that's something that I'm, you know, I'm thinking about probably every week, trying to come up with different content. Because uh, I don't, I don't believe in just putting out videos on a schedule just for the sake of it. I I used to do that a little bit, but now I just it's uh, as and when things are are really worthwhile for the audience. Um, I have a pretty deep respect for their time. I really, I really don't like wasting anyone's time. So a few things I've I've picked up in the conversation so far is talking about um, AI and mastering being pigeonholed for AI specifically. Partly, I think that's because it's easier for people to devise technology to process a stereo track than it is to go in and process dozens potentially hundreds of tracks but i think ai might be kind of breaking down the gatekeepers of the industry in in a mastering sense just as dare i say it the midi pack is lowering the bar for people's accessibility to music and production you now don't need any harmony skills apparently um <laughs> to <one>. produce <laughs> to yeah. produce music in a world where things are so disposable and there's so much access at our fingertips. You know, something else you've just said is that made me think of um, people turning up to, and I, I've got a friend who tells me about this, uh, who says, oh yeah, he had a guy come along with a beat he downloaded off YouTube with the watermark on and he's expected to be able to mix vocals recording on a phone <laughs> on top of that. And yeah. I mean, he's, he's, I guess the question is, do we want to protect our industry, protect the art form, keep the human element of it? You know, you seem very focused on the, on the human element of it and helping people, Michael, which is, you know, which is very honorable, but do as, as an industry, as a collective, as mix and mastering engineers, producers, songwriters, artists in our own right, as we all are, do we want to protect the industry from AI or from the dumbing, the dumbing down yeah. sounds cruel, but the simplification of what is an art form that, you know, in the eighties when, uh, you know, when Queen were recording, they were phenomenal musicians playing in phenomenal studios made phenomenal by phenomenal engineers, both recording, mixing and mastering. We don't make music like that anymore. Well, most of us, I did listen to the new dream theater album the other day and I was absolutely blown away by, by how good that was on all fronts. But is it our job as experienced members of the community to protect it? 
to cherish it, to um, try and reverse the devolution and the demonetization and the race to the bottom in, in terms of pricing that every, everyone suffers. Yeah. So, if any of that makes any sense, There's yeah, a no, of course, of question course. As yeah, I was no, improvising. No, it, it's it, it's a it's a fantastic question. It's one of those things where I'm not sure how to group together to to fight any of this or how to you know sort of like unionize or whatever. But I think one thing that really really helps is educating people and talking to them about what what they actually want to do because it's just like any other any other hobby or skill. Like you wouldn't want the AI to write the song for you, write all the lyrics. You wouldn't want to take away all that fun. Um, like just like you wouldn't want, <clears throat> or I wouldn't want AI to write an entire book for me if I was an author, or play the guitar for me if I was if I was a guitarist. And I think just reminding people, but some people and, are doing that purely for financial gain, which kind of ruins yeah. the art for the rest of us as it cheapens the industry. It's so difficult because everyone having these conversations doesn't know what to do in in every industry. Um, it's so. I mean, except the writers' strike in LA. Ex yeah, except that which which seems which seems to have worked really well for them. But in one way, I'm I'm really I'm for machine learning and AI tools that challenge us to be better. Like I I like when if, if someone can run an AI mastering and send it send it to me and say, hey, I actually quite liked what this sounds like. Can you do better? That's fantastic because now I've just got to push myself harder. But if you if you can basically automate the whole process and, and remove people from it, at that point, I would be talking to artists and, and studios and people and just saying like, what, what are we, what are we trying to, trying to do here? Are we only trying to make hits for Spotify or do we actually all, are we not wanting to enjoy this as a craft and a hobby at all? It does feel like there needs to be a little bit more organization from people within, within the profession to make sure that this doesn't all just happen. And it's definitely, it's definitely something to be concerned about, but I, I don't think it should be something that's, um, that's stressing anyone out too much just yet but i mean I, I don't know what what your opinion on it would be as you were saying that i just thought about the car industry and how you know the the, the there are very few bespoke hand making car companies around i'm thinking of uh morgan uh over in the, the west of england been one example of a family run company still hand making cars versus the car giants pumping out cars but what are the can, what are the pros of machines taking over humans jobs well you've got flawless consistency which is delivering consistent and safe products so maybe there's an element of well music can go down the consistency route with uh, mm -hmm. with ai I mean, and there are yeah. on the fringes whether it be on the bespoke front or whether it be on the the really high boutique um custom making side of it maybe that's where where musical yeah. go and it will be a a boutique service thing for the people who still care or it'll be the really high-end high-quality end of the 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 product spectrum like the results i mean by the by product yeah that that's a really good insight and i would say i mean that there's big differences because like if i was choosing a you know like a human to weld a car part or a machine you could probably get you could probably get them to a very similar quality but one thing i was testing and it's for this this video i'm working on but i don't mind sharing it is that if you run like a mix into an AI mastering tool and almost any of them that I've tested, I've tested half a dozen, it will make adjustments. If you then take that master and run it back through the same AI, it makes further adjustments and quite significant ones. And then if you take that master, turn the volume down, run it back through the AI, it keeps making changes over and over again. And I've done this with all of them, whether it's the um, sort of Ozone 11 Advanced, whether which I love. I love what Ozone and Isotope do or what Isotope do with, with Ozone 11. Um, or whether it's FL Studio Master or Lander, it, it it will keep showing you that it will make differences, and you keep running it through. And then, and it's a little bit again of a fabricated example, but it just shows you that the AI is not listening to what it's doing, and it's not doing it as well as a human could do. Because you can get to the point where a mix has so much treble and so little bass, you put it into a mastering tool, and it still further boosts or cuts stuff over and over again repeatedly, and that just lets me know that even when you're giving it the same reference track or the same reference genre or style, it just, it's doing stuff that no human would do to it. And that's why I just think, um, I hope my video does a bit of good here and just shows people that these, these sorts of AI tools really suck, even if the technologies behind them are really cool. Because I, I love, like, I love Ozone 11. I don't use it every day in my job, but there's some modules in there that are just incredible. And I love as a tool that... Yeah. 
when you put it when you put the auto mastering on, it shows you everything it's doing. I love that. And I think they're one of the best. But the fact that you can put a mix into it over and over and over again, and it just keeps spitting out different processing each time. And then you run the same mixes through and it just keeps adding more and more and more processing for the sake of it. It it just very clear that it's not it's not listening, it's not picking up on any issues or or flaws. It's just trying to add more processing. Um and I think this video will will educate people and show show them that this this AI is not even close when it comes to audio processing yet, but there are so many cool things it can do, like noise reduction. I mean, I, I can't even believe how good machine learning and AI-based noise reduction is. Um, I've shown a few tools on the channel, but five, ten years ago, there was nothing good to remove heavy background noise, hiss, hum, and now you can just do it with the turn of one dial, and it really is absolutely shockingly good so i'm not i'm not opposed to any of these tools but i think when people learn that it's just not there's some things ai is fantastic at and audio just isn't one of them yet um i think i think that'll do a a, a, and will go a long way in protecting our industry i hope at least you know but i think there's there's other industries say like guitar making where i just don't think there's much that you know if you want a proper a properly well-made guitar it's just not gonna it's not gonna happen on a production line there's always going to be a market for for that for that sort of handmade bespoke experience but then it's like but then the question would be like where does that leave most of us because uh, you know you wouldn't want to put 90 percent of us out of a job or something anyway i don't want to seem sort of like doom and gloom yeah. hey there ed here you may recognize my voice from doing all the other distro kid advert segments this time i didn't want to just do a typical advert talking about stuff to do with DistroKid. I actually wanted to give you my feedback about the service because I genuinely do use DistroKid for uploading my music. And I know Paul does, and it turns out Dan Worrell does as well. I've used DistroKid since 2019. As you can see on the screen, I have six releases so far. It is genuinely super easy to use. The tracks get into Spotify within 24 hours, which is remarkable. Apple Music takes a little bit longer. I'd suggest giving that 10 to 14 days. The hyperfollow links are really useful for advanced promotion of your tracks. And the promo cards are really great visual aids for social media promotion. Ooh, I particularly like that one. DistroKid collect all the royalties from your streaming services. And here you can find an itemized breakdown of where all your income has come from. There's also a DistroKid referral where you can save your friends $10 per signup by creating your own VIP referral link. So Michael, in, in, in light of using something like Ozone to tonally balance stuff and raise mixes to a level where clients can compare with uh, other previously released music, um, how, as a mastering engineer, would you prefer files delivered? If I use Ozone to polish my mix, but then lower the output so you're still getting 5 or 6 dB of headroom, is that acceptable or do you want the mix as it was intended before that i mean maybe with the processing is as intended that's another debate but would you want it with the ozone processing or would you just want whatever i'm happy with whatever the client's happy listening to which may have ozone on and then just give me a bit of headroom and i'll do the rest or do you yeah, feel so, ozone's not really giving you much to play with oh yeah i mean I, i'm pretty easy i'll just first tell people send me what you've got you know and after i take a listen to it that that'll let me know what kind of processing they've got on it and then I'll, I'll always ask i'll say love the mix bus processing you know because that lets me know where they want to be i say can you just send it to me with uh with all your processing but turn the limiter off all the processing and limiter on and then just no processing so just send me those two or three and i say you know i'm gonna it it's possible that all their mix bus processing is just absolutely spot on it's very it's very likely that there's a compressor set wrong or there's something automatic there but i just like being really easy and just saying i love what you've done send it to me with and without i'm going to use that and and see what i can do and then uh, usually one of those three will give me something really good to work with i don't like receiving files that have been limited and then try to pull the pull the level down because i've just found from a lot of a b testing that it's better to to redo the limiting when you sort of delta limiter and you hear all the crunching and craziness that goes on, it's it's always better to have a fantastic room and or headphones or system and get the limiting done right. But I, I try not to scare people and I try not to be like, oh, take all that off, like and make them feel like they've done a terrible job. Cause a lot of the time, like they've that mix bus stuff or that their master processing is um it's got a good energy to it and it lets you know the sort of tone they're going for. 
just like when you guys receive a rough mix um, that might not resemble what all the stems summed up sound like because they might have extra processing. Usually a, a, a bit less processing is better, but I, I try to work with what they send me. And I think I, I've sort of heard similar from a lot of mastering engineers. Some people are very, very picky about it and they just want no mix bus processing at all. But uh, I like to sort of work around what people are doing. This is also one of the Sorry, reasons why I developed my own plug plugin, I suppose, and it'd probably be a good chance to talk about it. I suppose I don't know if you could pop a picture yep. up, it, up, on, up on the screen of it or something in the edit, but a lot of the time I was receiving stuff that was very squashed, um, even if it wasn't limited. And this is why I tried to make it a tool specific, mostly for mastering, but it re can really be used on any track to try and bring back the dynamic range also so that I didn't have to ask people to make so many revisions because I was just finding, and maybe you have the same thing where people tend to over-process their tracks, over-compress. And I, was I tried to make this tool, it was very simple, just lows, mids, and highs where I could pull back a little bit of that dynamic range, trying to distinguish a bit between the transient and sustained material, just so that, <clears throat> you know, instead of asking someone to go back and have to adjust the snare or adjust the bass a bit, I could just tweak things and adjust it and i've also found some of my clients have got the plugin and they just make this adjustment too and it it makes things uh, a lot easier for me getting a bit of that dynamic range back before i have to inevitably try to pull that level back up again and that that's that was a really sort of like interesting thing to develop as someone who's like an audio professional youtuber because again i felt like i found this sort of a little bit of sort of gap in the market and and again tried to make something that wasn't too flashy with not too many visuals and displays because um as much as i love plugins like that the number of times i've been fooled into into thinking i'm hearing something that i'm not and that's a whole that's a whole other discussion so headphones speakers i know you've done a video comparing tons of different headphones for mixing yep. um, i know you've got very expensive psis <laughs> in your studio um but uh, what's your thoughts on speakers and headphones are you somebody who believes that you could get arguably as good a mix out of headphones as you can with speakers or are you a guy that's mostly speakers and you will normally tend just to stick with speakers so boring answer but I, I absolutely use both i think you can you can get phenomenal mixes with headphones especially with um a, a, you know applicate like a can opener application anything you know you can run plugins mm -hmm. on your your output to cross uh what's, what's it called Cro cross feed the right to the left and also all the different virtual monitoring systems so not just vsx but what sonarworks is doing what can be done in headphones is, is just extraordinary so i i definitely rely on headphones a lot but there's um for me n nothing can beat the the three-way monitoring system in a fairly well-treated room i find that i'm i, I use that 80 percent of the time and then any sort of error checking or or very fine work where i just feel i need that absolute focus i'll always put the headphones on Five years ago, I probably would have said no, no, no. You couldn't, you couldn't do, you couldn't get there with headphones. But there's, there's so many phenomenal options, and I'm always changing different headphones, trying, trying different things out. Which headphones do you use? Yeah, so right now I'm fifty-fifty between these ones, Biodynamic nineteen ninety Pros, which sound great out of my. I've got Emerging Anubis, so they sound really well powered by those. And then surprisingly, I just, I actually had to pull these out of my suitcase because I was just <laughs> traveling with them, but the uh the vsx as well which is like here on, and people know what these are they're the virtual headphone system and that was a product where i truly i i thought it was like a scam until i tried it it was shocking like i ignored <laughs> their emails for years and i just thought there's no way and i just thought no sorry i was i was, I was thinking like steven i like you but no i'm not interested and then i i they sent me a pair i tried them and i was i was so wrong I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the sound of them. They're a very usable system. So yeah, I'm sort of 50-50 between those, especially if I'm traveling, I'll just take those because they they can sound so close to a, to a speaker system. And the only downside is that I've just spent so much time with my own speaker system that I don't need a, a model of a speaker system. I think what's interesting is that I'm still to meet somebody that doesn't highly rate VSX. And all I've heard is that you just get really good translation. Like uh, people have said to me, they're not the greatest sounding speakers in the world, uh, headphones in the world, but in terms of translation, they just they just do the job amazingly well. Yeah, it, it's it's an odd one because sometimes if I just want to, if I just want to do some work for say fifteen minutes, half an hour, and just put them on, it's 
I find it's a lot more convenient than sort of firing up the whole studio, even though it's very easy anyway. And, you know, without, obviously this isn't like an advert for them, but I just remember just thinking there's no way. And I was so closed minded to it. And I felt so silly when I, when I finally tried them and was just, um, I put on, I put on a few, a few reference tracks. Um, and I just, I couldn't believe I, I immediately took them off my head because I knew that I'd left my speakers on and it was so embarrassing because I had them on here and I took them off and my speakers were not on and I was just, I couldn't believe it. It was just like a, a proper facepalm moment and that that really sold sold me on it. I just, I was, I was fooled. But getting, even with those though, the, the trick is you have to listen to, you know, a hundred hours of audio through them. You've got to mix with them. You've got to listen to a load of stuff on your, Spotify or your, you know, whatever streaming you use, because otherwise they're they're no more usable than any other system. Um, but yeah, no, the 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 translation is something people always talk about. I think you can get great translation with with uh, with anything that you know really really well. But with the speakers and headphones, you know, there's a, a big difference in stereo image there. But you know, we've I know this is like a, a discussion that's been had loads and loads of times. But yeah, I I, I love speakers. This is more fun to work on them. It's an interesting discussion because on our last video where Paul and I did a mixed comparison, there were people saying they preferred Paul's mix and then saying they mixed on headphones and there were people saying they preferred my mix and saying they heard it on speakers. Now that is interesting and I mix on speakers and Paul mixes on, on headphones. So I, I chucked on a pair of headphones when I was editing um, the next episode, sorry, the last episode, uh, Wasting Away and... I put the headphones on and I thought, ah, okay, Paul's mix does make sense with headphones on a little bit more. I also thought my mix made sense, but maybe I was wrong. <laughs> but it's interesting how I, like like for me, the mixes I've done on headphones, I haven't liked. I, but mm-hmm. I'm just a speaker guy through and through, I think so. But I'll the reference thing- on, on headphones. I, I would like to get the uh, the Slate VSX. So, uh, Stephen, if you're listening... <laughs> I know I'm sure I'm sure he'd love to send you a pair. One of the things that's been big differences between headphones and speakers for me is setting things like reverbs and delays correctly. Anything atmospheric and ambient, I find that I always set um, way too much on speakers and far too little in headphones. So on headphones, these reverbs just sound a lot more lush to me and just more expansive. Whereas on speakers, I tend to find I have to turn it up a bit more to hear more of it. But it's also less of a problem for me, luckily, because there's almost no reverb involved in mastering besides a very interesting job I did once where someone wanted the whole master sent to like a, a bus with reverb on it for this weird effect. But no, there's there's no reverb really um, in, in what I do. So luckily I don't have to worry with that. But yeah, I, I always set those sorts of effects so differently. That's interesting because I think the last couple of mixes Paul and I have done, mine have been on the drier side with speakers and Paul's have been on the wetter side with oh. effects now maybe i've gone a bit dry because the psis are so revealing in the mid-range and for transient tails as you know that mm-hmm. maybe i'm i've become a little bit afraid of them because you hear everything on these speakers i mean it also depends it looks like you have a very a very dry room there so you're you know that that could also adjust how much you put on but with these speakers i mean what i found this is unintentionally turned into a psi advert but i just i can't set um anything dynamic you know even the the transients from everything from a kick to a hi-hat it's just so easy to set those dynamics on speakers compared to headphones for me but also i just think you're doing everyone a disservice if you don't check on on both i i have a it's not here because i was just yeah, listening to some absolutely. music on it i've got a wee bluetooth speaker here i've got headphones different headphones speakers and there's absolutely no harm in making it sound good on all of them. And then you really know you've won if it sounds good in most of it, in most of those places. Yeah, and it's interesting that we focus on headphones versus speakers, but I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've got a, an Anchor soundbar, and that is my alternative set of speakers. So that is, yeah. what, a 40, 50 pound? I've got this, lo- this little Marshall Bluetooth speaker that's basically exactly the same size as that. We love making all these like like splitting into like factions of like speakers, headphones. It's like why not just both? <laughs> you know why why not just both? Like they both work. And f- mobile phones, a plugin that I use that I really like is called Mix to Mobile. The application mobile. Uh, comes in on your phone, and then you can basically send the audio from your DAW using the plugin, 
I think it's about £40, uh, so you have to connect it to your Wi-Fi network and it'll connect to your phone, or you can connect it via USB, but it's been flawless, and I put mixes on there, and it's it's amazing uh, just how different a mix will sound, particularly with harmonic content, saturation, and as you said earlier, if the kick and snare levels are too loud, you're going to blast your phone speakers to pieces before the mix is really coming through. And it really That's highlights really what's poking through vocals to me. So, as well. would you mix while you're streaming it to your phone? Sorry to cut you off. As in, would, would, does it play back in real time? Uh, it's it's in real yeah. time. Um, there's a little bit of latency, but like a toler a tolerable amount. So, yeah, you, you could in theory do a whole mix through it. That might yeah. even I be. Mean, a good no, I, I, I mean, more for like just <laughs> we, just we adjusting a little mobile. bit here and there. <laughs> yeah, because right now, I, for me, it's just export, and then I just airdrop it to myself. It's really really simple. It was it was more tricky when I was on Windows and PC and Android, but I just export and sort of airdrop versions to myself. I, I, again, I'm yeah. It's but bit... that's real. That's really time consuming. So what you can do mm-hmm. with this is also obviously stream it from your DAW, make adjustments if you need to. But from your phone, then you can try all your consumer headphones, uh, Apple earbuds. Oh, that's um, a good I've point. got some Anchor Sport gym headphones. So you can do all that from from the phone. So it's like it opens up a whole other level of referencing without having to email yourself or or um, airdrop yeah. yourself stuff. So that, that, yeah, that's called Mix to Mobile. I'll, I'll actually genuinely need to check that out. I'm one of these um, engineers who will have five, six, seven versions before I send the client a or zero one like i'll just have so many revisions oh, yeah. before i send them Same. anything so which is good because they, they get to see something nice and clean but yeah i'm i'm really particular about that one thing i would say to anyone you know trying to improve in this industry or, or get more clients or get just better results is to just be just brutally honest with yourself and what you're doing like many times i will put on lots of processing and i will truly a be it at the same volume and I will just talk to myself and say, look, Michael, that you're, you're not improving the situation here. You're not making this sound more musical. You've made it sound loud, but that's about it. Like at the same volume, that that's not it. Try again. And it's really hard being that honest with yourself. And it's worse with mixing because you've probably spent six hours on it. But even if you've spent 45 minutes and you're really grooving to the master and then you do compare them and you just think this isn't, this isn't it. Let's just take a break and try again. That That's got to be... I think one of the one of the best things for me was just dropping, trying to drop the ego a little bit, and just uh, just remembering that I can do damage as well as good, and just being really open to that. Um, I don't know if you if you have the same experience or if you tend to if you tend to get more positive results than negative results when you compare. Well, moving to the PSI audios, where from the Neumanns, I felt like I was second guessing everything I was doing. I think I now have the opposite problem in that I hear everything in so much detail. It is tempting to overdo stuff, but what it is helping me hear so much better is compression. So I am, in fact, doing less, a lot less compression, certainly to the previous iteration of the podcast, as Paul will tell you where things were quite squashed. During the process, I am, A, being a lot more, again, I don't know if it's, you know, me bypassing my ego, it's just trying to, tune my ears you know what have I done here that I think sounds good let's just double check it and not leave stones unturned I have a final question what's your best bit of advice for up-and-coming mixing engineers trying to forge a career yeah okay I think I've actually got a good a good answer to that and that is just you know as well as all the normal stuff working on your skills working really hard to learn everything we know you need you need to make good connections to get anywhere with this and to do that you've really got to you know, have have something to offer the people you're connecting with. Because I find this a lot, a lot of people direct message, a lot of people email. And the ones that get through to me are the ones that are compelling, where they have something to to offer, something that I can't do myself, something I'm not very good at, or they're trying to, you know, if you're just trying to reach out to an artist to collaborate with them, you know, you've got to have something that they don't have. If they can already produce electronic music, but you can play an instrument or you can sing or you can do something different, um, and it doesn't have to be very different. It could just be a gap in their skill set because every every human on earth has a gap somewhere in their time, in their you know, uh, in their time or their skill set. If you can try to fill that for them, that is going to actually connect. And sometimes it won't, and that's just that's just life. But I would say try to try to offer 
people something they don't have. Like if that's what Paul's doing, setting up your uh, your studio, it's like, well, there isn't there isn't a studio there offering that. That's what you're trying to offer that's special to people, as a, along with all of your skills and all of your attention to detail. Um, that that would be that would be something I'd uh, I'd suggest to anyone. There is something I wanted to just very quickly touch on previous mastering conversation where we were talking about uh, the benefit of sending it to, to to someone else it's not just limiting it's not just processing something i didn't mm-hmm. mention uh, that we're talking about the psis is if you're running something through processing or an automatic mastering tool what you're hearing in your studio might not be a good representation of what's actually happening and that's why it's good to get another professional involved with a huge monitoring system where they can hear every detail that an AI tool couldn't hear. And that's just something I wanted to add on top of that, which is sort of like a, a no-brainer, but it's just to remember that it, you might hear something sounding better in your studio. That does mm. not mean it's going to sound better uh, to to the uh, to the consumer or the customer or the you know the listener of that music. Um, so, yeah, and also, I guess, understanding that it's a never-ending learning curve. When MSM was on the other week, I asked him if at what point he felt he'd, he'd discovered you know the the translation secret and he said no no i haven't still learning every track i listen to at a festival or 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 at a venue or something he's still hearing things and still tweaking his process and that guy's done all right with his career so listen to us all be humble and you know remain remain hungry to learn and and as long as music keeps changing we're just going to have to keep changing our skills slightly if every song was the same it'd be very easy but very very boring so Thank you very much, guys, for having me on here. I've uh, really, impre- really appreciate chatting with you guys and hope we can connect again soon. Michael, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing that wealth of information. Uh, a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime for sure. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you are listening on streaming platforms, you can also watch us on YouTube. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can also watch us on the move. If you don't have YouTube Premium to listen in the background, thank you to DistroKid, our sponsors. If you are releasing music you can get 30 percent off your first year subscription using the working audio tools vip link in the podcast show notes and the youtube video description it has been emotional thank you for tuning in